you know, it's, it's in his book, Mere Christianity, that C.S. Lewis writes that Jesus cannot be considered a moral teacher. He has not given us that option. He lays out for us in this book, this beautiful manifesto, that Jesus has to be categorized into one of three ways. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. You cannot separate Jesus from the truth claims that he made. He is either a liar in which things that he said were not true, either he's crazy in the things that he said, or he really is who he says he is, and he is Lord. And if he is Lord, and he is, then he demands our all. That is what we see in Mark chapter 12. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We as a faith family have been walking through the gospel of Mark together. I think we are in week number 52 of just walking through this fast-paced gospel. I think you can read Mark several times over before you get to the end of this sermon series. It's a fast-paced book in which Mark is highlighting the life and ministry of Jesus. Mark's fast-paced gospel is focusing on the person and works of Christ, primarily pointing to, um, uh, pointing to Jesus, and his audience is primarily Roman. It's Gentile, those who are not familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And so he's pointing to Jesus and who he is and what he has come to accomplish. In chapter 12, Jesus has gone through a series of interrogation-like tactics from the Pharisees, the Herodians, and from the Sadducees. They fail, they trip over themselves, and they are unable to get him to make any mistakes in his teachings. He has answered all of their questions regarding his authority, regarding taxes, regarding the resurrection, and regarding the greatest command. His answers were so solid that verse 34, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Every ball they hit at Jesus, he hits it right back even harder between their legs. And in Mark chapter 12, beginning with, with verse 35, the scripture says this. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment." Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. 
For they all gave out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus has been attacked by the political and religious leaders of his day who have tried to trip him up in his words. He responds at the end of chapter 12 by going on the offensive. He cross-examines these religious and political leaders to the point that they are humiliated in front of the crowds. This morning, I want you to notice in the text the teaching of Jesus and how we are to respond. I want you to see first, be humble because Jesus is Lord and Messiah. As he is days away from these religious leaders putting him on trial and sending him to the Romans to be crucified, Jesus is unflinching in the face of their questions. He does not balk, he does not backpedal, he does not become bewildered. Since the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians have failed to stump Jesus, they're done asking him questions. They can't find a way to trip him up in his words. So then Jesus says, all right, I'm your huckleberry. I'll ask you a question. Verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now, this was not a controversial statement because it's universally accepted that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. We see this in the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God made this covenant with him, he says, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. In fact, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, throughout the Psalms, Hosea and Amos and Micah, all throughout, they point to the offspring of David. The lineage of David would come the Messiah. When you get to Matthew's gospel, he begins with the genealogy. He walks through the pedigree of connecting Jesus to David. And John 7, 42 the crowds were trying to decide if Jesus was the Messiah. Some were saying, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. Others were saying, no, it can't be possible. Doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? What Jesus says in verse 35 here, this is not controversial. He's just reminding everyone of the obvious, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. It's a descendant of David. But the Jewish people did not believe that the Messiah would be anything more than just a man. They believed that he would be a military conqueror, that he would be a great king, he'd fulfill the promises of Abraham, but they did not, and they still do not, believe that the Messiah would be God in human flesh. Remember back in chapter 11, when the religious leaders asked Jesus by what authority he did all these things? Despite all of his works, despite all of his words, they hated him and they wanted to kill him because he claimed to be God in the flesh. Jesus then takes the question further. He points to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it's a text that's driving to the Messiah. This is what he's going to look like. Look at verse 36. David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now Jesus is pointing to something that these Jewish leaders had not considered. 
the Messiah is both David's son and David's Lord at the same time. This is where Jesus is trying to take them. The Messiah would be more than just a human being. He is God. He is Lord. In this passage, Jesus is turning the tables and he's asking them a question that they're unable to answer. Verse 37, David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Checkmate. You guys are supposed to be the religious leaders of Israel and you can't figure out what the Messiah is supposed to be like? You can't realize that the Messiah is both David's son and David's Lord, that he's going to be a fully man and fully God, that this Messiah is going to come from the lineage of David, but he's also Lord over David. You see, they can't get their heads around what Jesus is trying to teach here. The teacher who did not go to school is schooling the sharpest minds in Israel. As followers of Jesus, we know the identity of Christ. We know who he is. Jesus is the true and greater David. Jesus is both David's savior and David's sovereign. Jesus is both David's son and God's son. Jesus is both God and man. And then this passage concludes kind of anticlimactically. The religious leaders, they're quiet. They're not saying anything at all. Those who came peacocking towards Jesus are walking away with their tail between their legs. The crowd here is listening with total amazement, verse 37. They're like, oh, snap. Jesus just shut down the sharpest leaders of Judaism. They'd never heard anyone teach with such clarity and with authority. You see, as the God-man, when Jesus taught, every word was perfect. Every word was poignant. Every word was purposeful and profound. And here is Jesus pointing to himself as the Messiah, and the people do not bow down. They love his teaching. Oh, it's so good. We love seeing you dunk on those guys. And yet they're not humbling themselves before him. They clapped like a bunch of fans, but yet did not yield their lives to him as Lord. You see, for those who are reveling in his teaching right here, in two days, they're going to be crying out, crucify, crucify. Question. Does the reality of Jesus' lordship lead you to submit and surrender to him? Or are you someone, when you hear his words, you clap and you praise, but when you go live the rest of your life, you're just saying, crucify, crucify. The crowds here are amazed at Jesus. Oh, that's such good teaching. We love seeing you humble the proud. And in a matter of days, they're going to be raising their fists and calling for his execution. How many people today, they love to celebrate Jesus. And in a matter of days, they're re-crucifying the Son of God by living their lives for sin and self. Is that you? Are you someone who says, you know what? I'll give Jesus my Sunday, but the rest of my life is mine. Jesus does not give you that option. 
He is Lord over all or he is not your Lord at all. You must be willing to humble yourself and get low before him and say, Jesus, you are Lord over all of my life. When I first became a believer, uh, none of my friends who I used to hang out in high school knew Jesus yet. And I was driving around town as a new follower of Christ, and I've got my best friend in the riding shotgun, and, and I just told him, I said, hey man, I, for me, Jesus is everything now. And now my life is going to submit to what he wants. And he said, well, that's not going to be me. I'll believe in Jesus, but the rest of my life is up to me. And I think that's a picture of where so many people are, especially in the culture of the South, where we can put up a facade of saying, yeah, I love Jesus, but the rest of my life is gonna be all about what I want. Here we see the crowd praising Jesus, loving what he says. They're, 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 they're fans. They're not followers. You see, if Jesus was a liar, then what he said is of no consequence. If Jesus was a lunatic, don't waste your time. But if Jesus is Lord, and he is, then he demands your all. You see, the truth of Jesus as Lord and Messiah needs to drive you and drive me to humble ourselves before him. Secondly, what we see here in the text is we must beware because Jesus will judge religious pride. As Jesus is teaching in the temple, he warns the crowds to verse 38, beware of the scribes. Now, why is Jesus warning the people of Israel about the scribes? What do they do that requires Jesus to put them on high alerts? Well, you see, the very men whom God had called to lead his people as humble servants, as examples of godliness, they're seeking after personal fame and glory. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were pompous. They were conceited. They were full of the worst kind of arrogance, religious pride. Well, what does religious pride look like? Well, I put this in your notes. Religious pride says, number one, look at me. Look at me. Listen to how Jesus describes, uh, describes the scribes. Verse 38. They want to go around in long robes and, and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. The scribes would walk around with long, white, flowing robes that set them apart from everybody else. It put out the vibe that, hey, I'm closer to God than all of y'all. Look at me. I'm important. I'm closer to him than you are. They wanted special greetings in the marketplaces. They wanted to have their titles called out loud and clear so everybody could look at them and how important they were. It's kind of like when you're introducing your friend to someone and they say, well, this is so-and-so, and they say, <clears throat> Dr. So-and-so, right? Do you know those people? Here, they're wanting their titles to be well-known. They want people to look at them with all of the attention and the special greetings at the store. They made sure that when they went to synagogue, they got the best seat at the front so everybody could see them. 
When they went to banquets and, and wedding parties, they would sit next to the host to see themselves as important in everyone else's eyes. They wanted to be the kind of people who walked into a room and everybody turns their head and says, oh, wow, look at them. They're here, right? It's kind of like the celebrity list. Everybody wants to look at them and they want the attention. Let's put the spotlight on me. Well, you see, religious pride says, look at me. May it not be so among us. As followers of Jesus, we are not ones who seek to draw attention to ourselves. We want to point people to Jesus. In fact, I want to invite, I want to challenge you to pray John 3.30, where John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is the heart as followers of Christ, is that we're not playing for the name on the back of the jersey. We're not seeking to make a name for ourselves. We're not seeking to build a brand. We want to point people to Christ, that when they look at us, they don't see us or remember us. They think, man, that looks a whole lot like Jesus. I don't remember their name, but man, they impacted me. When I was in high school, I made fun of a lot of girls who were passionate for Jesus. And I didn't know Christ yet and wasn't following him, but they prayed for me. They knew I was lost. When I snapped my leg in half, I broke it, and God used that to draw me to his son. I remember one time I was in my living room watching television, and these two girls showed up at my house and came to pray for me. And to my shame, I don't know their names. I've completely forgotten their names, but do you know what I remember? They pointed me to Jesus. And may I say to you, that is the call of God upon your life and my life as well, is that our names would be forgotten by this world, but people would remember Jesus. I've preached in lots of different pulpits in which usually there's a plaque that the congregation can't see. And it's usually placed right here at the top. And it's a quote from John chapter 12, verse 21, that says that we would see Jesus. These Gentiles came to the disciple Philip and said, we want to see Jesus. May that be the desire of our hearts is that we want to see Jesus not only in the leaders whom God has placed over us, but in our lives as well as followers of Christ, is that when people see us, they don't see us, they see Christ. They forget our names, but they remember Jesus. The desire of our hearts must be not look at me, but rather look at Christ. Well, the second thing we see here, that religious pride says, give to me. Verse 40 is to me the most heartbreaking of all of these marks of religious pride. Jesus says that they devour widows' houses. That word for devour, it means to eat up, to, to gobble up. These scribes were greedy. They wanted money. They would serve as estate planners for widows and rob them of their resources. 
When a woman was grieving the death of her husband, these scribes would take advantage of her and convince her to give all of her money to the support of the temple or for their own personal gain. They took their money and their property that their husbands had left behind for them. They robbed widows of their dead husband's financial support. The arrogance of these money-hungry religious leaders taking advantage of the vulnerable, taking advantage of those who are the weakest in society. Hear me on this. God does not take kindly to those who take advantage of people, especially widows. He will hold everyone in account who takes advantage of those who are especially weak, like the widows. Can you see why Jesus is so angry at the Pharisees? I mean, he he warns them in Matthew 23, the seven woes, seven different times. He says, woe to you, woe to you. He's calling out judgment is coming. And hear me on this. Judgment is coming on all con artists and thieves. You cannot get away with anything before the all-seeing eye of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 10, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Question, is that you? Have you swindled people out of their money? Have you stolen from the weak? Have you taken advantage of other people? If the answer is yes, then repent. Turn from your sin and look to Christ. Jesus died for your forgiveness. He gave his life so that you could be washed. So today, turn from your sin and say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. You run to Jesus for grace and his cross is sufficient to pay for all of your sin. And then from there, you prove your salvation by paying back every penny. You show how authentic your faith in Christ is by paying back those whom you have swindled from. How many con artists have stolen money from widows in God's name? Preachers who have promised God's blessing on those who send them money. That's garbage. Hear me on this. Don't do that. Don't send your money to people who promise you blessing if you send it to them. It's a trap. And Jesus will hold everyone accountable who pulls these con artist-like ways upon people. Judgment is coming for those who prey upon the weak. These religious leaders, they're taking advantage of the very people whom God says to protect widows, to protect them. And we're going to see here in just a moment an illustration of what Jesus is talking about here in the text. So we see that religious pride, it says, look at me. It says, give to me. But then thirdly, it says, listen to me. So not only are they drawing attention to themselves by saying, look at me. Not only are they stealing money from the vulnerable by saying, give to me, Jesus says that they, verse 40, they say long prayers just for show. Now, hear me, there's nothing wrong with praying for a long time. Jesus would stay up, uh, go sleepless for an entire night in which he would just pray all night long. There's nothing wrong with praying long prayers. But the key is right there in verse 40. They pray for show. 
They're seeking to impress the listeners by how articulate their prayers are, how long they are, how impressive they are. Wow, look how close to God I am by the way that I pray. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus preached on this exact topic in which he says in Matthew chapter six, verse five, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. You see, the purpose of prayer is not to show off for man, but to draw near to God. Jesus here is giving a warning against showtime religion. God's not interested in spiritual show-offs. He will hold accountable all who put up a religious facade. Hear me, if you want the praise of man, it's fleeting. It's temporary. It's shallow. Rather, let's be a people who seek the praise of God. For Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray... Go into your private room, shut your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, with religious pride on full display for all to see, notice the sobering reality for those who say, look at me, give to me, listen to me. Verse 40, these will receive harsher judgment. Although hell will be punishment for all who reject the gospel, the suffering will not be equal. Hell will be hotter for hypocrites who play religious games. Let that be sobering today. Have you rejected Christ? Are you playing a game? Your soul is at stake. Jesus says those who are playing this religious game, their judgment's gonna be harsher. It's gonna be stricter. There's a greater condemnation for those who know the truth and reject it than for those who have never heard. In Matthew 23, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? We must beware of religious pride. For Jesus, the righteous judge, will bring all things to light and we must give an account. You see, religious pride brings judgment. If you've been someone who's put up a religious facade, If you've got this mask that you put up as an affront to make everyone think that you've got it all together and that your walk with God is closer than it is, this text is a warning. Today, humble yourself. Time to throw off all of the facade and say, I'm not who you think I am. And you know what's liberating? Surrender. It's saying, I'm done trying. I'm done with everybody trying to think that I'm somebody who I'm not. And oh my goodness, the liberation. You no longer have to try and balance two lives. You no longer have to wonder, what does everyone think about me? Because you're like, you know what? I care most what Jesus thinks about me. I'm gonna humble myself before him and by his grace, for his glory, I'm gonna seek to walk in faithfulness, obedience to him. 
If religious pride is creeping up into your heart today, turn from it. Humble yourself and run to a bloodstained cross where Jesus gave his life so that you and I can walk in the freedom of not having to walk in that kind of superficiality. We can walk in the confidence of the gospel that we are who he made us to be, that we don't have to compare ourselves to other people and say, man, look how amazing he is. Look how fantastic she is. I'm, I'm nothing compared to them. And the Lord says, no, 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 don't look at them. Look at me. You walk with me. Fix your eyes upon the author and the perfecter of your faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see here a warning. Beware of religious pride. But thirdly, this is, ooh, this is so good. Be generous because Jesus celebrates faithful sacrifice. It's been a long day. Jesus has been teaching in the temple and the day's not over yet. So Jesus takes a break. He sits down in the courtyard across from the temple treasury. The temple treasury was a part of the temple where people would bring their tithes and offerings. They would drop it into these 13 trumpet-shaped buckets. When the sound of money would hit the brass of these buckets, it would make this loud clanging noise. And so those who are wealthy, they would drop their money in and they would make sure everybody heard how much money they were giving to the temple. They were, they were boasting by the sound of the, the coins hitting the, the, the buckets and it was a, a moment of pride. Well, as people are dropping all this money in as the sound of is hitting the, the sound of these trumpets, Jesus is watching, right? This is so good. And these rich people are dropping all this money, which by the way, Jesus does not condemn. It's not a sin to be rich. Okay, it's a sin to hoard. We'll unpack that another day. But he compares their gift with the gift of this poor widow, this poor woman who drops two tiny copper coins worth about a half a penny and barely makes a sound. There's no fanfare. No one wowed by her gift. Probably people scoff or shrug off this tiny gift that she gives. And Jesus calls his disciples over and says, hey boys, did you guys see that? She just gave more than her body. And the financial guys like Matthew the tax collector and Judas Iscariot, they're running the numbers in their head saying, boy, Jesus, you're way off on this one. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. They gave out of the surplus of all that they had. She gave everything that she had. Now, here is a woman who is a victim. Jesus here, we're connecting the widows who have been taken advantage of by the religious. And she is destitute because of these Pharisees who have taken her resources. This is a picture, it's an illustration of what Jesus just taught in the earlier passage. She's a victim, and yet simultaneously, she's a hero. She's modeling for the church throughout the ages, this is what giving looks like. Is that here is a woman who is giving her all. She is giving back to the Lord out of what he has provided for us. 
Don't miss these two giving principles that we see right here in the text. I want you to see first, Jesus sees what we give. He sees what we give. Verse 41, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. As Jesus is seated, seated after a long day of teaching, he's watching the rich drop their big money into these buckets and this poor widow gives her two coins and Jesus is like, don't miss this reality here, okay? He sees what we give. He is the perfect accountant. He is keeping perfect record of what you and I give, okay? He is the one who is making observation of what we give back to God, okay? But the second thing we see here in the text is that Jesus sees why we give. He sees why. Now we're getting to the heart of the matter. Jesus not only sees the amount, he sees our motives. The widow here, she gave everything she had to live on. This is an act of worship and sacrifice where she gives God her all. In comparison to the rich who have all of this money, they, they are giving back to the Lord large sums. But Jesus says, no, 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 guys, look over there. This is a woman who's throwing in all that she's got. She is showing her love and devotion to God by what she is giving. It's small in comparison, but it is huge in the kingdom. You see, giving to God is kind of like as a parent, giving your kids money to buy you a gift. You, you, you give them the money. It's, it's really, it's, it's your resources. They get to go do with it whatever they please. They show their, their love for you, the, the quantity, the amount. Ultimately, it's your money. They just go and spend it in a way of honoring you to gift back to you. Well, that's the same thing with giving. All of our money is not ours. It's the Lord's. And so as it's his money, we want to say, Lord, I want to steward, I want to manage what you have given to me in a way that glorifies you. You're watching what I give, but God, you're looking past the action right into the motives of my heart. And so, Lord, I want to give back in a way that gives glory to you with a joyful, cheerful, generous heart saying, God, it all belongs to you. And so all that I have and all that I am, I'm giving it back to you. You see, here this woman is displaying radical generosity with a meager income leads us to our impact point, and it's this. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Therefore, offer your entire life to him as an act of worship. You see, Jesus is either liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And if he is Lord, and he is, then our offerings to him is not just a small drop in the bucket, but our offerings to him is one in which you and I, we get in the offering basket. We would be, I would break it if I did it, we would jump inside and we would say, God, here is my life. I'm yours. Take all of me. 
You are Lord, your King, your Master, and I'm yours. Question, is Jesus Lord over all of your life? May you and I be a people that say, Lord, I'm getting in, and I'm offering all that I have back to you. 